<clears throat> now this is recording. RTI International Center for Forensic Science presents Just Science. Welcome to Just Science, a podcast for justice professionals and anyone interested in learning more about forensic science, innovative technology, current research, and actionable strategies to improve the criminal justice system. In episode four, Just Science interviews Paul Reedy, owner of Fourth Street Global, a digital forensics and cybersecurity consulting firm, about data stories and the future of digital evidence. Rapidly changing technology can complicate the analysis of digital evidence. As such, it is imperative that researchers and investigators work to stay on the cutting edge of the digital world. Paul Reedy believes that being proactive when it comes to the development of new digital evidence technologies will help investigators keep up with criminals. Listen along as he discusses tool validation, data stories, and the ever-evolving landscape of digital evidence in this episode of Just Science. This season is funded by the National Institute of Justice's Forensic Technology Center of Excellence. Here is your host, Dr. Mike Planty. Hello and welcome to Just Science. I'm your host, uh, Dr. Mike Planty, with NIJ's Forensic Technology Center of Excellence, a program of the National Institute of Justice. Today, we are with guest, Mr. Paul Reedy. Welcome to the podcast, Paul. Hi, Michael. Thank you. Glad to be here. Paul is currently the owner of the Fourth Street Global, an organization that is a leader in consulting services and research with a heavy emphasis on data and digital evidence, including digital forensics and cybersecurity. Paul has a very distinguished career serving as strategic leader and manager for the Australian Federal Police, developing innovative initiatives focusing on digital evidence, among many other things. He has been part of complex transnational criminal investigations, including organized crime, counterterrorism, drug trafficking, human trafficking, among others. Paul established and led the Washington, D.C. Department of Forensic Science Digital Evidence. Uh, he holds multiple academic, organizational, and committee positions and authored several must-read articles, including a forthcoming book titled uh, Strategic Leadership in Digital Evidence, What Senior Executives Need to Know. Paul, tell us a little bit about that book before we jump into the other topic. Yeah, the book came about because I had been doing the papers on digital evidence for Interpol for a number of years. We do one every three years. While it focused on the most recent research, I didn't think there was a book that was all that accessible for people who were moving into digital evidence from outside. My own history was I came into digital evidence from outside. Um, I didn't know a lot about it. I didn't understand it. And I thought that they might be helpful for other people who are doing the same thing, want something fairly quick and digestible. They can read through it and gives them a good place to start from knowing what resources they'll need, what capabilities they'll need within their people and touching on some of the cultural issues that one deals with when dealing with digital evidence examiners. Great. Uh, it's a timely book given the changing nature of uh, our society today. So today, our focus is on digital evidence. Um, you recently completed and presented findings uh, from your Interpol review of digital evidence. Uh, this article was just released uh, in Forensic Science International. Uh, tell us about that effort and the impetus and purpose of those reviews. The purpose of the reviews is that when 
people are encountering digital evidence, there's a fair bit of research and there's a rapid change in technology that's occurring. You know, and we could, we're all aware of that as consumers. The latest upgrades in our phones, for example, the new services that are available, even social media has changed dramatically. And every three years we try to do an update. We do it for all forensic disciplines, but I found the one for digital evidence is invigorating because the range of technologies that are available is growing enormously and the complexity of the data that comes from those devices, which I refer to as a data lake. There's a lake of data pertaining to any particular case and somehow we've got to be able to sort through it. Early days, it was a PC. Basically, that was what digital evidence was and sure. trying to obtain evidence from a PC. Then phones became involved. Phones now outsell PCs about six to one. So most of the data is on the phone. But in the last three to six years, there's been a dramatic change. And there is a fair bit of research now being done in academic institutions in particular, but also by other interested persons who work in agencies who are generating new knowledge about how to acquire digital evidence and how to look at digital evidence in line with these newly emerging technologies. Yeah, when you think about just the nature of how things have changed, you know, six billion phones estimated around the world, uh, millions of apps are available right now to download, uh, the internet of things. So you're sitting in your home, we can track purchases, we can, uh, your Roku television knows what channel you're watching and what room possibly. Uh, when you leave the house, uh, your GPS is tracking where you go. Uh, when you buy gas, how much you're paying for gas. Um, uh, and of course, anything you buy online is tracked and social media not only tells you where you are, possibly how you're feeling. And so you stitching together the fabric of an individual in real time and over time, um, it's just overwhelming the amount of information. And not only that, when we think about crime, it's the globalization of the problem. Uh, we're not just talking to our neighbors. We could be talking to somebody completely around the world. I think one of the challenges you've identified in your article was the time frame for responding to crime has shortened, but the complexity of crime has increased. Can you talk a little bit about those demands? Yeah. So the time frames have shortened in terms of responding. When I first started, it was quite normal for an investigator to, to seize a PC, deliver it to the computer forensic lab, and then three to six months later, if you're lucky, get a report back. <laughs> and that was the expectation at the time. Today, the community and our funders, I, the politicians, our councils, mayors, they have much greater expectations on greater timeliness. It's challenging because the amount of data in digital evidence, for example, is growing and has grown exponentially and will continue to do so. The complexity is increasing and yet somehow we have to leverage those technologies to be able to deliver faster in what we do. And there is a greater expectation, you know, for justice to be just, it needs to be fairly quick. Absolutely. And, and you touched on a really important point uh, is the triaging tools that are needed um, for the, both the identification of relevant information, but also caseload management. What should I look at? What phone? Which cases should I put forth? And these tools that are starting to emerge, uh, the use of automation and robotics, and also um, probability sampling. Probability sampling has been around for 
quite a while for forensic financial investigations, looking at the millions of transactions that have occurred. So trying to scour through those and, and identify key information. So triaging has become important, hasn't it? Yes, it certainly has. And there are a number of companies and most of the developments in digital evidence are actually made by companies, made in the private sector, are developing a number of different triage tools, some more effective than others, but that also changes over time too, because they're in a race, they're in a competitive race to improve, but they are also trying to deal with the same challenges that we are as practitioners. And those challenges will, will keep going. In addition, there are a number of academic researchers who are turning their minds to the problem, and they're looking at different triage approaches as well. But the reliance on these commercial products are also uh, a challenge for forensic scientists, right? Yes, they are. And when I first stepped into this field, I asked the question of the people that I was meeting, and this happened to be all of the leaders within the country, and I said, how do you know that the tool you're using does what it purports to do? And pretty much all heads went down. So yeah. what was happening is people were taking tools off the shelf, downloaded from the internet, and just applying it to their data, to their evidence, and then issuing a result. And really, we're taking it on faith. Because at that stage, the philosophy within digital evidence was digital evidence is a fact, that it's mm -hmm. not subject to error. Now, we all know how dangerous yeah. that assumption is. Furthering this conversation around the off-the-shelf tools is you're starting to lean towards more practitioners not understanding the mechanics and I think that's what you're touching on, of the actual tool. So it's a black box application to almost, in many cases, novel situations. It may have been developed for one situation, and you're applying it to a very different situation, operating system, etc. Yeah, it was often referred to as Nintendo Forensics. Yeah. Push the button, evidence in, result out. That's interesting. I mean, it's really similar. Uh, social science research I work with, a lot of statistical programming that used to be done manually and worked through are now uh, the same sort of thing. Uh, you can throw in a whole bunch of data, press a couple of buttons, get a regression analysis, and then over-interpret, under-interpret those findings. And that's what you're really afraid of here is when you get uh, something off of this tool, do you know, is it complete? Is it accurate? Is it valid? Can you say a little bit more? Uh, you mentioned a little about tool validation. What's needed there in terms of tool validation in an environment that is constantly changing, very dynamic? So with all forensic methods that are applied, all should be subject to tool validation, no matter what discipline we're talking about, whether it's in chemistry or DNA or whatever it might be. Tools must be validated so that we can understand that the tools are not perfect because they're not, and especially so in digital evidence, but understand the situations and the limitations in which it can be used. And if there is a limitation, to be able to work within those limitations in how it might be applied. Now, it is challenging in digital evidence. There is no doubt. It's challenging because the data changes all the time. We spoke earlier about there being 2 million or more apps that are available. And many people now communicate by apps on their mobile phone rather than just using text and, or social media or whatever. But those apps get updated pretty regularly on average about once a month. What does that update do to the structure of the data? Now, one of the things that we've noticed in particular through the course of the review, we list a number of the most popular apps. For example, the most popular communications app these days is WhatsApp internationally, but there's also Facebook Messenger and WeChat and Chi Chi Mobile, 
Snapchat. Once upon a time, all the information was on the phone itself, stored within the app and formatted within the app. That's not the case anymore. For some of these very popular apps, the information is actually on the server and there's very few remnants or artifacts from any communication sitting on the device itself. They're sitting on the server, not under anybody's control, apart from the control of the company, which might be located in another country. So these are the challenges that we have to be able to understand that. That doesn't mean the tool's useless if it can't find it. It means that we know what the limitation of that tool might be. Are the artifacts that we see sitting on the phone or are they on the server? Do we have to do something to trigger or pull that information down from the server? Some of these apps deliberately do not store any information at all, even on the server. Well, it comes and goes, right, uh, by design. And then there's a whole legal access that we're coming to uh, acknowledge about the the commercial and the proprietary nature of where this information is stored in law enforcement, legal access to that information is a challenge. A few other things um, that you, you bring up is um, this swing from a reactive response of forensics in, in policing and law enforcement in general to one around harm reduction and prevention. And, and so forensic science needs to um, deal with that swing. So you're not just talking about, like you said, a crime was committed, go get somebody's mobile phone, or the computer, tablet, what have you. But now there's, there's a push about prevention. Say a little bit about that. This is gonna be very challenging for many societies. For example, one proposal has been that tracking could be added to, for example, students' phones who are in a classroom or in a school, and uh, tools being used to, if you like, measure the emotion of the phone. So one of the big challenges that particularly children undergo, and you know, I've seen it directly myself, is the issue of cyberbullying. There's always been bullying at schools. You know, we hate that it's there, but it is there. But kids could have respite when they get home. Now, it's 24 hours a day, and kids can be bullied at home on social media. They don't want to leave the social media because then they get talked about even more. But that's what happens. What some have suggested in some way that this can be monitored, and not necessarily the content of the messages is examined, but the emotion within the messages, the content there, that that could be used to alert authorities. And when we're saying authorities, we're saying, for example, teachers and school administrations, that they're, they're moving towards an incident, that something sure. yep. untoward might happen. Now, we've, everybody wants to protect the kids, but also we're starting to move into areas of privacy. And this is going to be very challenging. This is a social question more than a technological one. There's a, that push and take between privacy and encryption that we're facing and these other proactive uh, means for what you're talking about, uh, potentially alerting someone to a wellness check that somebody needs and that could use and intervene early on. But this big brother uh, is really right there and is an important issue. And some of the things that have been brought up, of course, uh, other precisions related to the information in terms of you have a social app, someone knocks on your door and said, we think you need help. <laughs> That's a shocking thing. How do you know that? Or facial recognition. Uh, we identify someone and it looks like you uh, and our confidence in those tools to identify with some precision. Yeah. You know, one of the things that makes digital evidence uh, a little bit different than other forensic disciplines uh, that you, you really identify is, is criminals are early adopters. If anything, uh, in terms of the maturity of technology, they're a step ahead of us uh, usually. As we've mentioned a couple of times already, there's new technology coming out all the time and there's new apps. 
uh, one new app after another. Criminals are very early adopters. We, as in working in law enforcement or in the justice system, we are somewhat beholden to the budget cycle in terms of purchasing, following rules of purchasing, and we're dependent on, in many cases, tool manufacturers to be able to generate a solution. And this is perhaps their biggest challenge. Uh, and I know that some of them are taking different methods for doing that, for being able to address those challenges. But criminals are not beholden to those same constraints that you and I hold. If one becomes aware of a new app and say, all right, this is the way we're communicating, downloading it. And if we can imagine an encrypted app uh, such as um, WhatsApp when it first came out would have been very useful. All right, it's encrypted. If it's intercepted, you can't tell what's going on. You can't tell the nature of the communication or the, the content of what's there, but it'd be very useful. And the, those types of apps are coming around all the time. There are now a lot of encrypted apps. And some of the companies that put those out are not particularly ethical companies. So they operate as a pass-through. They might have a server in which those messages pass, but they retain no information on that server. Or that they might keep the server in a, in a country that might not be too concerned about retaining copies and making that available to foreign law enforcement. And coupled with that, even if they are ethical, they're going to give their first attention to their the company in which they, the country in which they're hosted, where they operate, they're going to be less concerned about helping foreign law enforcement in anything that they that they might require. With your Interpol review uh, of the most recent research, um, you identified a number of emerging trends. Maybe we'll touch on a few of those here. What struck me when I was putting together the last review was it's all about the data and. That's guided my business at 4th Street Global as well. And that's, hence we came out with the hashtag data stories. What's the story that data is trying to tell us? So this came from the review. And when we looked back at it, I found this is actually not a new concept. Sir Arthur Colin Doyle had the famous saying, data, 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 he cried impatiently. I cannot make bricks without clay. That was from the copper breaches, the Sherlock Holmes in the adventures of the copper breaches in 1892 all right so this is not new <laughs> what's old is new again right <laughs> but it's taking on a different form so one of the first themes that came through in the paper was that of memory in the past memory was useful but it was a little bit of a niche specialty within digital forensics i refer to it as a, a boutique technique uh, for niche functions but now it's a very important function to the way many devices function and the way that data is manipulated, moved and generally managed, but it's difficult to analyze. So there's a lack of documentation from manufacturers about how inter internal memory structure is put together, the architecture is put together. To do it effectively, essentially you need to do a lot of uh, reverse engineering. Reverse mm -hmm. engineering is a time consuming process and it's unique virtually to every case, specifically sure. to every case. So there's a requirement going forward for uh, automated testing of tools that are produced for memory. So we go back to what we we're talking about validation. So we've got to be able to validate those tools, but validate them in, in an automatic, automatic or robotic way so that we know that they are appropriately handling the data that is present in memory. The next one, which is perhaps the big one, is cloud services. We've been talking about yeah. cloud services for a long time. And over the past three to four years, 
cloud services have really changed the way we all do our computing. I mean, I, I moved all my home systems and everything onto cloud recently, right? Because that was the change yep. and I get better services from it. It's more, more mobile. The device that I use doesn't have to be as complex. It can be lighter so I can carry it more easily, but they're all different. There are multiple, multiple different cloud service providers and they have different types. And th there are three broad types. There's software as a service, which is where the applications use a shared infrastructure. There's platform as a service, where user deployed applications are placed on the shared infrastructure. And then there's infrastructure as a service, where underlying computer resources, such as the operating system or other software is provided by the cloud service provider. While we make th those three distinctions, the way people use cloud services is kind of a blend of two or more of those types of services. Now, until recently, there's been very little research that's been conducted on the forensic implications of cloud services. But those early digital forensics tools were based on device forensics, acquiring data from a device, but now we're trying to get it from somewhere else that is accessed through a device. So it's quite a different challenge to, uh, to a digital forensic practitioner. And then NIST, they have tried to identify the challenges confronting forensic analysis in the cloud environment. Which is a heck of a lot. That's a just, big number. Just 65? <laughs> but they can be loosely grouped or chunked up, if you like, into challenges of architecture, challenges of data collection, challenges of analysis, anti-forensics techniques that people might use to prevent detection, how to action the first response to an incident, the role management. Now, when the practitioner had control of the device, that was it, they had control of the device. Practitioner can't control a cloud service. So there has to be a formal engagement between the digital forensic practitioner and the cloud service provider to ensure they obtain the data that they need legally, comprehensively, and that can be verified. Talk a little bit about that process. Has there a process been evolving? I mean, we hear about it with uh, companies about the formal relationship with law enforcement. But when you talk about role management of the cloud service, I mean, is this just like one-off? Are there standard templates or processes that are being developed on kind of like a mutual agreement between these companies and practitioners? There are formal agreements between well-developed law enforcement agencies and your common providers but it really is the wild west out there. There's hundreds of different cloud providers and they're not all located in our domestic jurisdiction. Just an example, there's one particular cloud provider in China that provides, I think it was 30 something terabytes of free cloud storage for its users. So if we had people who were using that cloud service provider and we wanted to, uh, conduct an investigation, we'd have to negotiate through that process uniquely with that individual. Now, it does get more complicated because the architecture for each cloud service provider is going to be different. And the ways of obtaining that information, whether it's through the technical challenges or the administrative and legal challenges, they're going to be unique between each pair of jurisdiction and provider. Real challenges there. So that's really demanding new skills. Let's move on to the, uh, the Internet of Things. We, we talked a little bit about that, but it, it's really an exciting opportunity for law enforcement, I, I would think, uh, but also a tremendous amount of challenges related to identifying devices, extracting, capturing the, uh, the information, 
and uh, ensuring chain of custody. You say a little bit about the um, Internet of Things? Yeah. So the Internet of Things, it's a commercial development because there's value that companies can see in providing additional services to consumers. That's how it started off. And currently there's around 26 billion Internet of Things, right? That many devices in the world today. So the, what's that? That's about four or five devices per person on the planet. It's expected that within another couple of years, there'll be about 42 billion devices. And another couple of years after that, perhaps up to 75 billion Internet of Things devices. The devices are unique to each company. A company will have its own architecture in the way that it's designed those devices and the way it operates. Internet of Things devices can communicate directly between each other or via an intermediary such as a smartphone or via APIs over the internet and the data can be stored either on the device itself, perhaps on the smartphone, on the internet or the internet server. There might even be a hub somewhere in there as well. And the data concerning to a particular action on a particular device can be distributed in different forms across all of those units. So that's obviously presenting serious challenges to leveraging that information for uh, criminal investigations. Yeah, to understand that information and be able to put it in the context of an investigation, one needs to be able to look at the data that is on the device and all on the other areas and then being able to combine it and put it together to gain an understanding of what's actually happened. The processing is often performed in the device itself because that's fast, mm -hmm. but the data and the processed data might be stored in the cloud. So we just um, in terms of the Internet of Things, it's just one that is growing. It's becoming more complex. But to be able to stitch together criminal behavior across those devices, someone's time and place, uh, their activity, it offers uh, a lot of opportunity. Yeah. And I should also say that the devices are not designed so that digital forensic examiners can extract the data automatically from the device. Quite often the device might have to be dissembled and go back to first principles and grind or directly take the data from the processor. And that's a, that's a very manual technique. It's not something you just plug in and do. And related to this is the move from 4G and 5G. Yeah, 4G was a revolution when it came. And when talking with the phone service providers, they had no idea how much of an impact it was going to have. They knew it was going to have an impact, but they had no idea, really. You can't predict what changes might, might be made. For example, streaming services just grew out of sight. It wasn't actually anticipated. Yeah. Social media, mobile social media, just grew in, a, in an unanticipated way. And if we think of the growth of Facebook since 4G was launched in 2009, Nobody could have predicted what social media is now to what it was a decade ago. So we'd be in a very hazardous position if we were trying to predict a decade from now with 5G coming in now, what it's going to be like sure. there. We really don't know. There is a few things that we can predict. We know that viability of autonomous vehicles is going to be greater. Part of the improvement there is the latency. That is the time that it's a signal takes to get from the device to its command center is going to be much quicker. And if we're talking about an autonomous vehicle, so one of the challenges with autonomous vehicles is they have difficulty anticipating unanticipated behavior, human behavior, like, like mm -hmm. pedestrians suddenly stepping out on the street. And uh, 
latency will probably improve, therefore the ability of vehicles to be able to deal with it. That's just one thing. I will end my predictions there because it's just <laughs> dangerous to try to... Yeah, it's just trying to understand the current state is a challenge, right? You know, and trying to predict uh, next year or five years or even 10 years from now, all we know are things are going to be, there's going to be more ubiquitous, it's going to be faster, and it's going to be more prevalent across every part of our society. I mean, that's what we can probably predict with some certainty. And what does that mean? And so one of the overarching themes that you touched on and that you really spent some time on your paper is about quality and quality assurance. Ever since I started in this field, so it's you know back to 2002, so gosh, that's further back than I care to remember. The question of quality assurance and accreditation has come up quite a bit. And there was very strong resistance to quality assurance back then. There's still significant resistance to quality assurance. For example, it's a pretty lively debate in the United Kingdom as to the value of quality assurance. And uh, so they're getting it from two sides. One is the the push to push down the costs, but the other is to have valid and just information and assurance of information that's going to court. After all, we're talking about the rights of an individual. The argument that many are making is that quality assurance or accreditation frameworks are too expensive. And to a certain extent, they're right. But my view of quality assurance and accreditation is that it's risk mitigation. You're mitigating the risk of an error. Now, I would say a couple of points about people who resist it. One is, it is costly, but my view is that most places, you know, and I used to be an assessor in other forensic disciplines before I moved into this, uh, somewhere between 80 and 90% of quality assurance frameworks are poorly implemented within organizations. And there's such an emphasis on compliance, you know, of review and review again and review again. So we're employing scientists, all right? We, we want scientists to do science and that's what they want to do. And for the most part, they're good scientists, but yeah. they get a slap when they make a mistake, like they don't paginate their pages properly or something like that. And so a scientist will spend way too much of their time, if you like, doing bureaucracy and mm -hmm. not doing much science. So people have to be creative and thoughtful in the way they implement. Now, the other thing is a checker box it instills a culture of compliance. I think all organizations want a culture of quality. And so you build that from the ground up. Whereas if it's compliance, you're imposing that from top down. The first time I was involved in a quality assurance, in quality assurance of an organization and getting accreditation, it was very much from the ground up. And so we would take, uh, I guess we would have an average of one corrective action report per week per person that worked in the organization. Now, it was a heavy load, but as an organization, we made a lot of improvement over a period of time into the way that we went about things. And as time went on, not that much time, we actually became very efficient, much more efficient, because people were identifying opportunities to improve efficiency as well. So we're improving efficiency and quality. So when I go back to digital evidence, people see it, and I understand why they see it as compliance with something that's not entirely relevant to them. The critical thing perhaps two critical things about accreditation that other frameworks don't give. One is that there's a review of testimony. So that is the ultimate forum in which our work is tested. So we do our digital evidence work. We've already seen in our discussion today that there's a grand possibility of errors, that we've been through a system of review and we get to testimony and giving testimony. And that is reviewed as well. The other issue is 
we ensure that the tools that we're using are validated. That they do what they purport to do. This is something that only accreditation can give you through quality assurance. There are many other frameworks and guidelines, but accreditation is the only one that will give you review and validation. For those of us who've worked in law enforcement, I think almost universally, we have an ethical duty to put forward and take steps to understand that what we're putting forward is correct. So the argument that it's up to the defense to work out what's wrong, it's unethical and it's ludicrous. Well, that's a nice segue then, you know, so what does the future hold? Where does this leave us or the field of digital evidence? I'm more confident now than I was when I first came into it, that we're moving in the right direction because I see a groundswell of people and people that I interact with pushing forward in terms of putting a stronger framework around it. I don't want us to get to the point where the field becomes prescriptive, which doesn't work because then if, if the field becomes prescriptive, then it can't innovate. And what we've seen in digital evidence, perhaps more than in any other forensic field, is going to be able to innovate because our data is changing all the time. It's changing in its form and where it's located. We've got to be able to innovate to be able to access and interpret that data. So I'm more confident now than I was before. And there's a lot more research being done outside of law enforcement being done by private companies, it's being done by universities. Universities are taking this on now and developing not just digital evidence teaching programs, but digital evidence research programs as well. So I'm more confident, but it's still going to be challenging because it just keeps moving. And you make the point that you know best practices and automated tools are not a panacea for this. The digital examiner has to be a problem solver. Yeah, absolutely. Must be a problem solver because every case is going to be different. And, and you also mentioned that multidisciplinary teams are needed to really bear on this problem of accurately interpreting the data. So this is the focus we're taking with 4th Street Global. It's not just the practitioner now. And this in part grew out of where we are now, but also grew in part out of when I was with Australian Federal Police. And we were dealing with uh, counterterrorism investigations and the like. You know, so there's conspiracy. Well, one particular case I can think of, there were 20 people involved in two cities. They were plotting to blow up some important locations that would have a lot of people, so they were going to time it for that uh, within Australia. But in order to understand that and to be, able to, to be able to develop the evidence and the brief of evidence for court, there had to be a lot of understanding and cooperation between the digital evidence examiner and the investigators. And there was a lot of back and forth. And then it operates a little differently in Australia to what it does in the US. But in Australia, the police officers produce a brief of evidence, which then gets handed over to the prosecutor. And it's their job to prosecute that case. But we would have a lot of questions coming back from the prosecutors to understand what was going on. And then we'd probably have to do a little bit more work on the, on the evidence to be able to answer that question you know, all the different possibilities and what if it's this, what if it's that. So that's where I came to. But now digital evidence has become so complex. And I mentioned earlier about being able to tell the story. That's the fundamental job of a forensic scientist is to give a voice to the evidence. So that's where our focus is within 4th Street Global. So there are a number of different skill sets that we require to be able to interpret the data that we're getting, the evidence. Of course, you need to digital forensics practitioner, 
because they have to be able to collect and collate all the data and be able to put it together. But with the new technologies that are around, we also need computer scientists who can have a fundamental understanding of the structure of the data and systems in which we're obtaining that data. But we also need data scientists who can use scientific methods and processes and algorithms to extract the knowledge and the insights that that data has. We need cloud engineers. As we've already touched on, the increasing complexity means that we need to have lawyers involved to say that we're not only getting the data legally, but also to understand the, the burdens of proof that go with the investigation. One of the things that we've all known from early on, I used to say, you know, to hold up my phone when I talk to people, say, my, my whole life's in here, in my phone. So the internet knows more about who we are as people than most other people. And our phones, our devices that we use do the same. So if the need be is to have a psychologist also looking at the data to work out what is this person thinking? What are their motivations? Now, it needs to be done in a very discreet way for some investigations, but we can take it to another level if we involve people who specialize in psychology to be able to do that. Another aspect are forensic accountants. To me, financial transactions is another form of data. And increasingly, money is a motivation. It always has been a motivation for crime, but increasingly so today. And so to be able to understand the financial transactions, even if it's as background to a given situation. Cybersecurity professionals, because the rightful and authorized access to information and to data or to a system, you really need to be a cybersecurity professional to be able to understand that. And then we have the situations that are unique. So it's always good to have partnerships with researchers and others to look at a specific case or a specific issue in a case to be able to understand that. So that takes us to what we're trying to do is we're trying to build an environment of partnership and collaboration of a number of different disciplinary experts to understand the situation that we're looking at. That was a great discussion. And uh, on that note, I'd like to thank our guest today, Mr. Paul Reedy, sitting down with Just Science. Uh, thank you, Paul. All right. Thank you very much, Michael. If you enjoyed today's conversation, be sure to like and follow Just Science on your podcast platform of choice. For more information on today's topic and resources in the field of forensics, visit ForensicCOE.org. I'm Mike Planney, and this has been another episode of Just Science. In the next episode, Just Science interviews Matt Rudell from Florida International University about the basics of digital evidence and the curriculum at FIU. Opinions or points of views expressed in this podcast represent a consensus of the authors and do not necessarily represent the official position or policies of its funding.